Hi, it's me, Tina Seelig. I wanted to take this opportunity to introduce you to my newest podcast, Leap. This new series aims to help you see and seize new opportunities in your life and career. If you like this episode on knowing when to quit, head on over to the Leap channel to subscribe. Life is really exciting because there are infinite opportunities and possibilities at any given moment. I often look at situations where you go, wow, I can't believe I'm saying no to this. But the balance is tipped more and more over time. Like you get older, you have more commitments, you are busier, and the percentage of things you say yes to, I think generally has to go down over time. Welcome to Leap, I'm Tina Seelig. I'm passionate about helping people craft the futures they dream of creating. And that's what I do at Stanford University, where I teach classes on creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. This podcast takes a deep dive into how to launch your career by unpacking the often overlooked and undertaught soft skills critical to the success of every entrepreneur. In each episode, we'll invite two people from very different career stages to discuss real-life scenarios. My name is Constantine Bueller, and I'm a venture capitalist. I'm John Melas Curiazzi, and I work at Spark Capital. Today, we focus on knowing when to quit. I still think it's probably the hardest decision that I ever made in my life, honestly, um, certainly professionally, was deciding whether or not to stay in my uh, PhD program. So what were you battling about? What were, the, what were your discussions going on inside your head? Well, I, I'd kind of built this identity for myself as a future academic when I was in undergrad, um, you know, working in the lab every summer, doing research, publishing papers. And uh, my senior year in college, I applied to PhD programs. I also participated in the Mayfield Fellow Program and got a chance to work in a company during that summer, too. I got back to my PhD and I realized that I was um, I was kind of marching down this track. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it wasn't necessarily the track that I wanted to be marching down anymore. Interesting. I can relate to that, definitely. So I thought for a long time, I don't know when the genesis was, but that I would do law school. And I thought this probably since, you know, grade school. I found out eventually it's not for me, but the the process uh, of figuring out it wasn't for me. Uh, was in itself kind of a journey. How'd you figure it out? Like, what was the turning point for you where you decided? It was it was during college. And the excitement and energy that I got from some other things I was doing, that's when I really got into engineering. And I'd always, you know, been a quantitative person in high school, multivariate calculus and uh, all that jazz and, you know, physics and, and whatnot. Well, it's funny because I have a similar. I started as a pre-med and mm-hmm. very quickly realized that that was not mm-hmm. for me. Yes. And I made the decision that I was going to take lots of different things and see where my interests and my skills overlapped. And I took a neuroscience class. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I was being given the permission to think about how I might solve a problem. And I went crazy with this assignment. And my professor handed back my paper and on the top it said, Tina, you think like a scientist. Oh, cool. And that moment of saying you think like a scientist, I, I became a scientist. That's awesome. Yeah. But of course, I did the same thing because yeah. even though I didn't drop out of a PhD or decide not to do one, yeah. I did it. But yeah. afterwards, I dropped out of science. Yeah, and that was a big deal because my advisor, my PhD advisor, viewed that as a big failure mm. because a success for her would have been for me to go on and right. be a successful scientist as well. 
We're constantly discovering more and more about ourselves as we grow older. Hopefully, that self-discovery never goes away. The process of learning what you do and don't like through trial and error and self-reflection can help you navigate many hurdles in life, including knowing when it's time to walk away from something. But if you're able to be reflective and learn from your experiences, you can leave the situation gracefully. There are times, though, when, of course, we have to say no. Of course. And, or we have to quit. I mean, we just, there's something happens. I'm really curious how you think about doing it gracefully. How do you quit or say no mm. gracefully so that you don't end up burning those bridges? Well, I actually feel the way that I quit my PhD was not very graceful. I think it was not graceful because I didn't give my PIs a lot of time. I think that one thing that really, really helps is giving people time to figure out how to deal with you quitting. Because when you've made a commitment to somebody, when you quit, there's going to be a hole left in whatever organization you're a part of. And the more and more time you can give them to handle that, the better. I think that if you talk to people about how you're feeling, you explain your decisions clearly, and you give them time to deal with what happened, that gets you 80% of the way there. Probably the most helpful thing that you can honestly do is give them real feedback. And oftentimes that's not easy. But I, I try to read the situation and say, hey, can I actually help? Here's the true feedback as to why I can't do this right now. But there are certain situations, and I'm sure you've encountered this too, Constantine, where you spend weeks or maybe months working on a potential investment. And then at the end of the road, it's not a fit. Mm-hmm. And that's the question is always... What, how do you handle that kind of situation? Mm-hmm. And there's some investors that will basically just stop answering emails mm-hmm. for a while, yeah. you know, and just kind of let them realize that you're not interested based on your lack of response. And I, and I mm-hmm. always think it's so cruel uh, mm-hmm. to, to founders to do that. So I always try to respond quickly, but there's always that question of how receptive will they be to feedback and how much feedback do you deliver in a way that's useful to them? Have you ever regretted a decision to quit or regretted a decision to persist? So when I was a sophomore here at Stanford, a friend and I built this website that pulled all the information from all the different websites on campus and automatically pulled all the events from those websites and updated them and accumulated them in one place. And my partner and I worked really hard on it for a year. And then uh, the summer came. This was my sophomore year. And uh, my sophomore summer... He went and worked at a software business. I went and worked for the Department of Homeland Security. And we effectively quit the project. And I I felt that, hey, I wish I didn't quit it actually as quickly as I did. Yeah. Sticking with a decision over time, pushing, you know, pushing for a particular investment or, you know, dropping an investment at the last minute because you had second thoughts or you had concerns that came in. I, I, do, I do look back on some of those specific decisions and say, did I really think rationally through it all the way through or did I let emotions get the best of me kind of at that critical moment? I think the easiest time to quit is right before the end. I've definitely experienced that as an investor where you do all this work and you have this moment at the end where you're like, all right, am I going to really push for this to happen or am I going to sort of let this fade away? Knowing when to pull out of a situation when things get hectic is a critical skill to learn. A few years ago, I fell into a trap where I was saying yes to everything. The opportunities kept flying in and I felt obliged to say yes to all of them. 
Eventually, I literally melted down, crashed, and burned. I thought I could do everything, and it was a huge reminder that sometimes you have to say no. It isn't about shutting down every opportunity that comes your way, but about focusing intently on one or two opportunities and being realistic about your time and energy. Opportunities are infinite. It's very exciting. If you took a deck of cards and every human on earth shuffled those decks of cards every waking moment of every day, it would take years for us to have gone through all the permutations on average. So a decade, I mean, just a deck of cards, which is 52 cards, and that's only 52 options. Each of us are billions of options. And so the number of possibilities are infinite. So the reality is, this is an objective fact. You will only live one of those realities. And I believe we need to be deliberate about which realities are consistent with our values and then follow that reality. That is so beautiful. I mean, it begs the question, how do you pick which one of those billions of options do you take? You know, which opportunities do you say yes to? Which do you say no to? Mm-hmm. I think students fall into a trap, and I was one of these students too, where there's so many cool things going on on campus, and you want to explore all of them because you're like a sponge just soaking up information. And the problem is that every hour you spend exploring a new thing could be spent on something that's regenerative, like sleeping or eating or reading I think it takes time to figure out what that right balance is for you. And I think a lot of students overcorrect. They come to campus. They say, I need to take five classes. I want to play club sports, and I want to do be on the robotics team. And then a quarter goes by, and they realize, oh, my gosh, I've only been sleeping four hours a night. Mm. And then it's easy to overcorrect in the other direction and say, maybe I should just take three classes mm. and quit all these different clubs. So I think it's a process of finding your balance. I think the default, though, should be to do less and to do it really well. One of the rules I have heard used is the rule of three that you should pick three things that are your priority. And they can be three different things each year or every month, Mm. but you can only pick three things that you can optimize Mm. for. So I have a professor uh, from Stanford Graduate School of Business, and he has a mantra that I think about very often. The best decisions are made in the presence of multiple good or great options. He's completely right. When you want to make a good decision, it's very important to consider multiple options to help us consider what the realm of possibilities are. I'm not saying don't run around and try a bunch of different things. Uh, Do do that. Make sure you don't burn out or get too tired. However, it's very important that you consider a lot of different options so that you have considered them, you process them, and then you start to make decisions and say, you know what? I like this a lot better. I'm confident in myself confident that I made the right decision, that this is more me than that, and continue that process until you basically are on your path. You know, I'll probably meet with 300 companies a year and invest in two. You know, I'm saying no to, let's say, 298, you know, founding teams. And learning how and when to say no is really, really hard. So for me, it's been like an amazing learning process and also a big challenge, figuring out when to say no, how to say no, and when to make these really big commitments. Life is really exciting because there are uh, infinite opportunities and possibilities at any given moment. I have this on my wall. Maturity is the ability to reject good alternatives in order to pursue even better ones. And this is really important, right? Very important. Mm. 
I often look at situations where you go, wow, I can't believe I'm saying no to this. But the balance is tipped more and more over time. Like you get older, you have more commitments, you are busier, and the percentage of things you say yes to, I think, generally has to go down over time. And more people want to spend time with you. And so you have to set the bar higher and higher for where you decide to spend your time. I think that the turning point for me was when I really got to know who I am in terms of my values and what matters to me most and what doesn't. And when I consider something and I, you know, it's a relatively significant commitment, I say to myself, is this consistent with who you are and who you want to be? And a lot of things are not. So those are clearly no. It's an immediate triage. Saying no is okay. We should probably say no to things a little bit more often. I use a tool to help me figure out when I should say no. Imagine a two-by-two matrix where the vertical line is need to do and the horizontal line is want to do. The things in the upper right quadrant where that you need to do and want to do are easy to say yes to. The things in the lower left quadrant that you don't need nor want to do, it's easy to say no. But it's those other situations that are tricky. And it's important to understand when you should figure out what things you say no to that you want to do, but you really don't need to do. I think that you should always be in touch with how you're feeling, meaning like you should be averaging your feelings over some period of time, maybe let's say six months or a year. And if you notice that that six month average starts really dropping down over time, man, it feels like the last three months, like every day I've felt demotivated or de-energized or unhappy. You start to, to see that trend become more and more powerful. Take notice of that. What responsibility do you as an individual have for shaping that mindset, mm-hmm. right? If you decide that you're not going to quit mm-hmm. and that you're going to try to make something work, what responsibility do you have to reframe the situation, think about ways in which you can make it better, mm-hmm. as opposed to just living in a world that's not optimum? Changing yourself is important, but it's also important to be mindful about how you're changing and not changing too fast. I've been in a situation where I've had a colleague where we end up in a difficult place. Mm-hmm. And I then realize it's my responsibility to start trying to look at the situation from their perspective. Mm. And all of a sudden, when I look at it from their perspective, all of a sudden I start seeing things I didn't see before mm. and see ways in which I could make it better. Mm. And sometimes it's really little things that you can do that make it better that you were blind to when you were just looking at it from your own perspective. Totally. Totally. I mean, the first thing that I do, actually, when I'm at in that situation, is I evaluate whether I'm being emotional or not. And so if that is part of the problem, I will say to myself, Constantine, you're being emotional. Is this something that can wait? If it is, get yourself to be rational again. So I will take and invest the time to sleep well, wake up well, make sure I eat well for a couple days, a few days, what, what have you. A day often works. Even an afternoon is actually sometimes enough if I just calm down and eat well or what have you. And then only once I'm thinking well will I try to take actions again. Another another kind of almost inverse strategy is sometimes assuming that the other person might be having an emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. Assuming that something bad may have happened with them and trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. So what are the tools you have at your disposal 
to see if you can make it work. I do think that transparency and being able to talk with somebody internally is really important. If you're kind of fighting this internal battle and you can't talk with anybody else in the company about the way that you're feeling, having internal mentors, I think, you can just be honest with and get advice from and feel like you can trust uh, is, is so important. I think it can be largely preventable and it's largely constantly having communication with your team and having really good relationship. But when dialogue cuts out and people aren't talking about what's going well and what's not going well, that's when I think problems happen. So be honest and clear and communicate clearly and pick people who also communicate well. Imagine your life is a garden that you're tending. It's one thing to take care of it when it's always under control. And if you're picking weeds constantly and keeping them at bay, the garden stays in great shape. But if those weeds turn into giant oak trees and the garden becomes a forest, you need to seek help to help you through. Who do you turn to to get guidance Mm. when you're needing to make these hard decisions? Guidance and research is one thing that I think is the the right approach when you think about something like this. I actually, I'm going to backpedal even before you you take on a commitment or opportunity. I actually think most situations in which you quit are preventable before they even began. But, you know, in the situations that I've been, I spend a lot of time and effort researching all the options before I make a commitment. One of the other things I use and have often advised students to use as a tool is to give yourself advice on what to do from your future self. Yes. So I'll tell someone, you know, a student comes in and they have a, a difficult dilemma. They're trying to figure out how to handle a complicated situation or whether quit something, stay with something. And I say, you know what? Imagine you're telling the story 20 years from now. How are you going to tell that story in a way that you're going to be really proud of it? Mm -hmm. I do pretty in-depth reflections annually. I say, hey, in 30 years, what do I want to be like? How am I feeling? Like I don't make specifics because I think that those can be a little bit dangerous in some ways, but it's my North Star. And I say, you know, what kind of people am I interacting with? Uh, What kind of ideas am I interacting with? What kind of actions am I doing? What kind of energy uh, am I getting? What kind of things am I getting my energy from? And then I build backwards. I kind of view it as like decomposing a problem. You start with the whole problem and it's good to have, you know, the, the opportunity 30 years ahead or 20 years ahead, as you said in your story, and then decomposing it into, okay, how do I get there? And then I kind of make the 20 year and the 10 year and the five year and the two year and the one year. And I've been doing that now for 10 years, actually. How, when do you just listen to your gut? Mm. Because sometimes you can wrestle with all of these things in your mind, mm-hmm. but really in your gut, you know what you should do. Values. Values is where I listen to my gut the most. I actually think values are the most important. I had a situation where I worked for a person for a year plus. And it became abundantly apparent that some commitments this person was making to me were not true and that the priorities that the person had in their life were not true as well. And I said, hey, this is not the kind of human that I want to be around because I firmly believe that we become more like the people we're around. If someone's not aligned with my values, it's not the right thing for me. Getting good at being introspective I think is really important. 
over time, if you can get better and better at listening to yourself, and I think there's a bunch of ways of doing that, including things like meditation, I think you can start to notice the changes in your mood and emotions as you do different things during the day. Mm -hmm. Did that meeting energize me? Did that mm -hmm. meeting drain my energy? Mm -hmm. Do I feel excited to do this or do I feel a sense of dread about doing that? And I think if you can be mindful about all those feelings, over time you can start to really build a mental picture about what's going on and whether or not the activities of your day-to-day -day are something that's ultimately uh, making you happy and fulfilled. You have the power to choose how you spend your time, both physically and mentally, and how to prioritize. I keep a running list of all the projects I'm working on on the desktop of my computer. And at the bottom of that list, I have three words as a constant reminder of the things I want to keep in mind every single day. For me, they are being present, patient, and healthy. When I experienced my burnout, it was these three things I realized I need to work on and to make a priority in the way I engage with the world. For so much of our lives, we're encouraged to persist, and persistence is considered an incredibly valuable trait. But it's just as important to know when it's time to let go of something that isn't working, and that can be very powerful too. LEAP is about finding the agency to thrive in our lives and careers. Remember, we create more value when we work together. So please spread the word about LEAP and rate and review us on iTunes. LEAP is a Stanford eCorner original series. The videos, podcasts, and articles on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. LEAP is produced by Ali Rico and Rachel Jolkowski. Jake Smith and Stanford Video are our editor and audio engineers. Susie Allen is our writer. Daniel Stussy is our designer and digital products manager. And I'm Tina Seeley. Thanks for listening.